Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Nice Girls Reading Naughty Books. I'm your host, Bernadette Walsh. And before I introduce my guest, I just have a couple of really great announcements to make. I have been very, very busy this week. My first audiobook, Cold Spring, which is narrated by Jerry Manthe of Survivor, was just released. And I have to say it was a fantastic experience. She did such a fantastic job, Jerry. She's just such a great um, actress, and she really brought a lot to the book. So I'm very, very excited about that being released. It's available on Audible and iTunes, and it's um, it's just really, really great. So I hope that people give that a try. And in um, in celebration of that first audiobook, I am making the um, e-book version of Cold Spring free until April 1st. So please check that out. I've also made the first book in my Devlin Legacy series, The Devlin Witch, um, which is a paranormal romance series. That is permanently free, and I just did that this week, and I'm very, very excited. There's been a lot of downloads. So you can get um, excerpts from all my books and my covers on my website, BernadetteWalsh.com, so please check those out. So anyway, this evening I am so pleased to introduce Courtney Milan. Courtney is a New York Times and USA Today best-selling author. A former lawyer, she writes historical romance and was a Rita finalist. Courtney's titles include The Wicked Gift. So welcome, Courtney, to Nice Girls Reading Naughty Books. How are you this evening? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Well, I'm so I'm good. I'm good. Although I'm here in New York and it is freezing, freezing. I don't know what part of the country you live in, but hopefully it's a little bit nicer than where we are today. Um, I was in in Florida last week. I'm in Denver. Uh, Denver is on and off. Um, We oscillate in winter between, uh, you know, the occasional minus 20 day and the occasional 60 degree day. Uh, And right now we're sort of at the colder end of things. Um, with a lot of snow, but it's actually really just pretty, and it yeah, won't last well, long. So, <laughs> I, I think everyone here in the New York area is just so so tired of it. And actually, I saw a picture today of you know Manhattan, and all around it is just ice. It's really really strange. The New York Harbor is completely frozen. But mm-hmm. anyway, wow. Um, yes. Yeah, I can't. I can't wait till this winter is over. But um, but at least I haven't. Um, my husband set up a little fire for me, and I have some tea. And I'm talking about my favorite topic: romance novels. And I think it's so funny that I'm interviewing yet another former lawyer. This, I'm I'm still a lawyer, but I've interviewed so many lawyers lately who have you know le- left the law to 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 pursue romance writing. And maybe you talk about. What, why you decided to pursue romance and, and whether you're writing romance full-time. I am writing full-time. Um, and, you know, I think that one thing that needs to be said is that I think that being a lawyer is kind of a crappy job in some ways. And I know some people who really enjoy it, but the crappy parts of the job are really not that great. Um, and almost everyone I know who has ended up practicing law has come up with some kind of an exit strategy within like two years max. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm 23 years in. 
So I have See, found I my exit say, strategy there's some yet. People, there are some people who, who, who manage to stick it out, but they're, they are by far um, the minority. And that's one of those things that you don't see discussed a lot. It's, it's, a, it's a practice that has a really, really strong um, exit pipe. So lots of different ways that that happens, but this happens to be one of them. Well, I think, you know, I think, first of all, I think a lot of people go to law school are, you know, English majors or liberal arts majors, so they have that bent anyway. And I, I think the segue into writing is in some ways a natural fit. And I also think, you know, it, it teaches you how to think critically, and that can help you in writing, and it can help you in lots of other things. So it's not all lawyers, you know, go off to become romance novelists, but they do do other things, and I think it gives you a foundation. I, I mean, I certainly have found the fact that I can deal with deadlines, that I'm used to writing, that I'm comfortable with language. Um, I, I'm good at editing because that's what I do all day with, you know, my legal side. Um, I think it's been helpful. Um, although I had to kind of, when I first started writing, I had to really um, kind of relearn how to write, right? Because I, I mean, I, my first attempt at a romance novel was, it sounded like a contract. It was very, very dry. And so I had to, when, I, when I'm doing my romance writing, I almost have to, like, turn off the lawyer part of my brain to a certain extent. Now, um, have you, so what have you found helpful for, with your legal background? And do you ever write about lawyers? I know that you do historical, so maybe you don't, but maybe I think you've, you're segueing into more contemporary. So, or have you turned your back on the, on the law completely? Okay, so there were about four questions there, and if I start ah! forgetting one, then okay. uh, remind me. So the first question was, how does the lawyer and the writing thing play in? Okay, mm-hmm. um, I think that one of the ways that being a lawyer helps, and um, I do mean this uh, seriously, um, there's something called the narrative fallacy, um, and the idea is that as humans we really want stories to make sense, and so we, when we see facts around us, we pick the ones that make sense to us and we weave a story out of them. And mm-hmm. even if there is no actual narrative, like this is how some two people can watch the same event and come up with two totally different stories about what happened, is that they each have different narratives, right? And the truth is mm-hmm. there may be no narrative. There is no driving cause. It's just like, you know, like a bad thing happened and another bad thing happened and then some totally unrelated good thing happened. Right, and that happens on a regular basis to most people. But most people who view that sort of stuff try to find a thread of causality, right? And I think one of the things that lawyers are very trained to do is to exploit the narrative fallacy. That is to take the facts that are available, even if they are completely unrelated, and use them to weave a narrative that tells a coherent story from beginning to end. which is one of the things you have to do as a fiction writer. Like, as a fiction writer, you are all about the narrative fallacy. You do not want to give a, a, a list of disconnected events in someone's lifetime that don't mean anything, right? So I think lawyers are, one of the things we are most trained to do is find facts, piece them together, make it sound like a coherent whole. So that part of the writing thing, I think, um, is very natural as a fit. Um, in terms of the actual language, I really think it's going to depend on your specific training and what you had to do. I actually think I was very lucky on the writing end of things because um, 
one of the things that I did as a lawyer is I churched for I, I clerked for uh, Judge Alex Kaczynski, who is famous for writing opinions that are conversational, easy to understand, gregarious, humorous, um, and surprising sometimes. Um, and he was probably one of the best teachers of writing that I have ever had in my entire history of you know, how many years of higher education? I hesitate to add it up. And uh, he was he was amazing. Um, and he, you know, the other thing is that he was very good at trying to understand what was going on and what people would be feeling at certain times and trying to convey that in his opinions. And so I don't know. I, I don't feel like anything that I've done has been inconsistent with my writing um, in that way. But I also think that that's a piece of luck on my part because I never wrote contracts. So there's that. Okay. Yes. Um, yes. The second question was uh, how this plays in. So first of all, in my historical, um, for people who've read my historical romances, then you know that I actually have a lot of law in them. Um, and it comes out in a variety of different ways. Um, I have written one judge as a character uh, quite possibly the only person who has written a historical romance where the hero cites Hale's Law for the proposition that if you intentionally become drunk, then your acts are deemed to be intentional thereafter, um, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. Um, I'm probably one of the only romance lawyers who has made fun of the rule against perpetuities um, in uh, a romance novel. Not the only one who's made fun of it, but the only one who's made fun of it in a historical romance. Um, you might be right. I don't there. know. I, <laughs> I think you probably are. <laughs> I, 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 I may very well be right there. Um, I don't know. It, it, it just this stuff comes up. Um, it, whether it's historical or whether it's contemporaries, it comes up um, in my contemporary. There's um, jokes about SEC filings and non-disclosure agreements. These are just, I, I don't know. Uh, this is sort of the world I inhabit, so it shows up in my books no matter how I I splice it. Right, right. Well, I've done the same, especially with some of my earlier books. A lot of times my main character is a lawyer or is married to a lawyer. And it's not about her day-to-day, because obviously in a romance it's about her relationships. But in some ways putting my heroine in that world is easy, right, because I've lived it for 23 years. So I can kind of talk about that outside part of her world very easily, and then then I can really dig into the character, and, it, you know, I can get, get the outside right. And so it's just one other thing I don't have to work on, you know what I mean? I don't have to research as much. But um, maybe you could talk about what attracted you to writing historicals, and I imagine you have to do a lot of research, and maybe your legal background helped you in there as well. So I, first of all, the historicals and the research thing, I get asked that a lot. And before I used to say, oh, I really enjoy doing research, so it's not a big deal. Um, and then I wrote a contemporary romance, and I did more research for the contemporary than I did for the historical. So I actually don't think that historical writers necessarily have to do more research than contemporary writers. I just think it's a matter of how much research you like doing. Um, and I hear, I, you know, I hear people like Julie James, who writes amazing lawyer books who, that are contemporaries, and she does a ton of research, you know, like she'll spend days shadowing somebody who's, you know, who owns a wine bar just so she can see what it's like. 
Um, so first of all, the research thing, I, I just think we should put that to bed. I don't think historical authors do more research than contemporary authors. Um, I think some historical authors will probably do more research than some contemporary authors, but I also think you can find some contemporary authors who do more research than some historical authors. So I really just think that that's a matter of who you are as an author. Um, in terms of why I started writing them in the first place, it's because that's what I started reading. Mm-hmm. I don't really have a better answer than that. That's what I started reading. I read a lot of them. I liked more historicals and I liked contemporaries when I first started writing. That's what I wrote. Mm-hmm. And so, and you now you have um, self-published all of your titles. Maybe you could talk about no. why you decided. To, I have not. Oh, you have not. Sorry. No. No, I started off as a traditional published author. Um, I published four books and a novella um, as a traditionally published author and then switched to self-publishing. Okay. And how long have you been self-published? Since 2011. Okay. And maybe you could talk about why you decided to self-publish. A lot of people obviously are going that route. And maybe what did you find... What have been some of the challenges in self-publishing and what have been some of the things that you've found, you know, rewarding? Well, the challenge and the reward are the same part, okay? So um, the reason I decided to self-publish, there were basically three of them. One, um, I did not want to give a third book in a trilogy to my publisher because I didn't like what they did with the first two in that trilogy. And no traditional house is going to pick up the third book in a series for an author who's just sort of mid-list. Like, it just doesn't happen, right? Mm-hmm. So my choices were either to sign another contract with him, which I was not going to do, or to self-publish it. So that's one of the reasons. Um, the digital royalty rate was a real sticking point for me. There's a huge difference um, between what you get as a self-published author and what you get as a traditionally published author, and that difference is like a magnitude of four. And I just uh, wanted some more creative control over what I was doing as an author. So mm-hmm. that's sort of why I wanted to self-publish. In terms of the difficulties, it's there, – I don't know. The things that people point to as difficulties, I would say they're challenges, right? And challenge mm-hmm. is a word that is a – it is a two-factor word, Right. Like, to some people, a challenge is going to be a thing they don't want to do. And to other people, a challenge is something that's like, ooh, this is going to be fun. Let me figure out how to how to best get around this, right? Like, my husband likes to run ultra marathons, okay, like 50K races. Um, mm-hmm. And that is a challenge. And some people hear, I'm going to run a 50K race, and they think, ooh, that sounds really interesting. I wonder if I should do that. And there's some people who hear, I want to run a 50K race, and, you, and they think, that sounds completely insane. I want nothing to do with it. Get that away from me. And I think that's sort of how self-publishing is. Like things like, you know, thinking about marketing and thinking about branding and thinking about giving yourself a, a unique look for your books and all of that stuff. Um, I, I think that these are challenges that to some people sound like, ooh, how can I do that? That sounds great. And to some people sound like, get that away from me. I never want to deal with it. So I, I don't know. Like, I don't find self-publishing challenging. Right, right. Well, In that sense. Do you find, yeah, and I actually have just recently 
self-published my titles as well. I was with Kensington, and um, originally with Lyrical Press, then they were acquired by Kensington, and so I originally moved all my titles over there, and I just wasn't really happy. Again, I felt a little ignored, and so I asked for my rights back, and I was very lucky that they did give them back to me. But I think, you know, again, being as a new writer, and, and I came to this rather later in life, I... I think it was helpful for me to start with a publisher and to work with an editor and kind of learn about how a book is put together. I think it would have been harder for me, or I think I would have been a little overwhelmed with um, attempting self-publishing, like, off, up, up, out the door, you know what I mean? So for me, mm-hmm. I, in some ways, I'm kind of mad at myself for not self-publishing earlier because I feel like in some ways I've missed that that wave a little bit I think because there's been so much self if I'd done it when I first started publishing which was 2010 it it just was a very different environment and maybe I would have gotten a little bit more on the ground floor but you know your your writing journey is what it is and so I can't really look back but you know I agree with you I, I I've I, I feel like I had to do most, especially being with a, um, a smaller press, I had to do all the, the promotion myself anyway. So, you know, putting the book together, well, you can hire people, and I've hired some great, you know, cover artists, and I'm not really great on the computer side, so I hired someone to to reformat my books. And, you know, you, I have somebody who helps me edit. So you can outsource those things, but I, I feel like, at least if you'd kind of gone through the traditional route and you knew what's involved in creating a book, you're not going to be one of those self-published authors who just, you know, finish their first draft and just throws it up on, on Kindle, which is, you know, what a lot of people think of self-publishing. Um, I noticed on some of your titles, you, you have, some of them have a, in the series have a certain look and feel. You know, is that something that you consciously did? I assume that's something you consciously did. And, and do you do your own covers or, or do you outsource that? Um, I do my own covers. I I have tried to outsource, and I am too nitpicky. I would just drive someone completely bonkers. Okay, move it over five pixels. Nope, 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 don't like it there. Four pixels. Nope, nope, nope. Okay, try moving it up. You know what? I hate that. I hate that typography altogether. Let's scrap it and try something new. You know what? I don't like the way it looks on that. I, I think maybe the problem is the title. Let's try changing the title. I am terrible. Um, I'm absolutely terrible. So I have ended up doing all my covers myself. It takes me a huge amount of time. I actually really enjoy it, so mm-hmm. I don't mind. Um, but, you know, one of my prior jobs, I have I have like this, this vast store of various things that I have done to make money over the years. And in one of my prior jobs, I actually did sort of like art slash various what what happened okay let me condense seven years into a very short space of time um when the internet first came into existence i was a very young college student who managed to convince people that they should let me make them web pages anyway uh because nobody knew how to make web pages and i had exactly as much experience as everyone else making web pages because html had not existed before then um Mm -hmm. and so I learned a ton about graphics and graphic design software and all of that stuff. So I didn't come into this from from step zero. Um, even so, I can see a huge difference right now between my cover design skills when I first started in 2011 and where I am right now. Um, mm-hmm. Just a huge difference. Um, 
and I don't know. That's there's a lot of things that are involved there, but hey. Um, but yeah, well, like I do I said, all my I, I'm sorry, I, I don't recall which series, but you have like some some covers with like um, she's wearing like a long dress, like in different colors. Am I? I'm probably not describing. Yes. See, I'm not well, very visual. So literally every single book at this point. Literally every single book that I have has that as the cover in the historical range. Every single historical book that I have is a single woman on the cover wearing a long dress where the dress takes up a substantial portion of the cover. Um, And the differences between series are going to depend on what the background is made up of and whether she is sitting or standing. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you deliberately said, now people can look at that and be like, well, that's a Courtney Milan cover in some ways. Yes, that's exactly what it is. Right, right. Well, I think it's effective. I really, and, I really like that. And I use the same uh, typeface for all of it. And I actually contacted the person who designed the typeface and asked her to hand letter a, a name, my name. Mhm. Um. So, I have a hand lettered name from the same person who made the um, the font that I use for all my titles. Um. Yeah. And that's great. Actually, you know what I mean? Way. Like you have the as a self publisher, you got to pick exactly what you liked. And I think as we know, when you're with a publisher you get the title you get the cover that they give you. I mean, and especially if you're a beginner yes. writer, you don't have a lot of sway. And so I was served up with covers and maybe they worked, maybe they didn't. I wound up using new covers when I when I re released them. But that is one of the, the the control aspect is definitely one of the benefits of, of self publishing and I think most self publishers will agree with that. Um maybe we could talk a little bit about the heat level of your books. Um and is there a, a big difference between your historicals and your contemporaries? Um no, I don't think there's practically any heat difference between uh, my historical and my contemporaries. Um, I think my books range from, you know, it's hard to even know what sort of scale to use anymore because the scale has been so radically shifted over the years. Um, You know, I write explicit sex scenes. The number of explicit sex scenes in a book varies depending on what the story demands. Where the sex scenes happen in the book varies depending on what the story demands. Um, I would say it's usually between two, sometimes more, almost never less. Novellas, sometimes less. Um, I don't know. Like, I think it's, I think I write fairly middle of the range for mainstream books in terms of heat level. Mm-hmm. So you're certainly not ranging towards erotica at all. No, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I I don't even think it's remotely close. Yeah, I I think it's pretty. I think it's pretty mainstream. Right. All right. And in terms of um, your books, are do you typically write from the first person or the third person, or does it vary by book? My historicals are almost entirely, or I'm sorry, not almost. They are completely uh, third person and uh, past tense. And my um, contemporary is first person present tense. 
dual first-person present tense. And so was that difficult for you to kind of switch? Because you started off writing historicals, right? Or did you always... I started off writing historicals. Mm -hmm. Yes, and it was not difficult at all. It just, that's just what felt natural. Right, right, right. And do you work with, I know that you're a member of RWA, and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit um, more, but do you work with uh, your local chapter? Do you have, like, critique partners, or are you kind of a lone wolf writer? I tend to be a lone wolf writer, although I do belong to my local chapter. I don't have, like, a critique partner group. I have um, a local chapter, and I go to about two meetings a year, which I wish I went to more, but I just always end up being busy or what have you. Um, Right. I also have – I do have critique partners. Um, The way we've used each other has shifted over the years substantially. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't do well with the whole brainstorming thing for my books. Um, I just – everything that I say about my books – Anytime someone says something like, try this, and I just, it never works in my head. So the only, the thing that works for me is I need someone to complain to. Um, and at this point, my friends know me well enough that if I start complaining about a book, they just shut up and say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when I complain enough, then eventually I'll complain myself into a solution. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, um, I, I'm always like, in some ways, jealous of people who have, like, really good critique partners and they can do the brainstorming. I'm sort of the same way. I have to really think about the book myself and kind of kind of go off in a corner and write it. And I may come out, you know, like I said, sometimes I'll, I'll share it with, um, with my local chapter. But for the most part, I'm, I'm a bit of a lone wolf. Uh, you know, I, I may in the future try and do um, – try and see if I can find the right fit. But it's almost like, you know, a marriage in some ways, right? You have to really work well together. Otherwise, it's not worth it. And, I, you know, I work full time, so I don't have lots of extra time. Like, you have to be willing to give as a critique partner. And I have so little time to write as it is that I don't want to necessarily use a lot of my writing time to, like, help somebody else. So I'm kind. I'm kind of want to have be a selfish critique partner in some ways. <laughs> you read my work, and and I'll say thank you. <laughs> that doesn't really work. So I don't know. But like I said, maybe uh, if I if I found the right critique group, maybe I would go forward with that. But um, now you are, even though you don't go to that many chapters, you um, you are involved in RWA. Is that right? You maybe you could talk yes. about what your role is in RWA. I am a director at large um, on RWA's board of directors. And and this is your first year serving in that capacity? This is my first year serving in that capacity. Okay. And what made you decide to take a leadership role in the national organization? Because I would imagine it is a fair bit of time, right? Uh, I think the answer to that is... um, People asked me to do it, and I finally broke down. Okay. You no, know, I mean, look, it's 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 not. You know, here's the thing, right? It's not a super exciting job. Um, you have lots of people telling you what they want you to do. Um, your job as a board. Here, here, one of the problems is that people see you as an elected official, and you're not. You're on a corporate board. Mm-hmm. And your job is not to implement the will of the people; is to do what's best for the organization. Mm-hmm. And that is not necessarily what the people want. 
So right. it's a job where right. there are some very thankless components and, you know, whatever. I've been a lawyer. I am capable of beating my head against the wall. And so that is a necessary skill. Yeah, no, I, I obviously there's been a lot of um, a lot of controversy about, you know, various changes that RWA makes. And I, I think that is what you said is very important, that your obligation is to the organization. So you're not like the congressman, right, representing the people who elected you necessarily, right? You have to do what's best for the organization and not each individual member. And I think that is probably hard for people to understand. But in terms of um, getting more involved in RWA, how do you think that's helped your, your writing life other than taking time it away hasn't. from your writing? Is it, it, hasn't. it hasn't. No, it literally hasn't. Come on. It, it does nothing but take time away from writing. It, it, do not join the RWA board of directors to write more. It doesn't work that way. So it hasn't helped you in networking or anything like that, you think? It's just something, nope. it's almost like, it sounds like something, you know, you think RWA is important, and that's why you're donating yes. your time in a sense. Correct. The only reason to do it is because you think that RWA is important, because you believe in its mission, and because you think that maybe you, you know, have a reasonably analytical mind and can think through things and figure out what you want. But no, it does not, it's not going to help you with networking. It's not going to help you with, you know, any of that other stuff. If you're at the point where you're where people will recognize your name enough that you are likely to get elected to the board of directors, my guess is you don't need any additional bumps in networking, period. And the fact of the matter is, if you're on the RWA board, you're going to have enough demands on your time at national conference. It will actually cut into time that you can spend on networking. Um, and because you also have to travel, like for me, it means that there's things that I'm not doing any longer because I'm on the RWA board of directors. Like I'm traveling less. And I'm going to fewer places. So it reduces the amount of networking that I do. So, wow. yeah. You know, it's if you're thinking to yourself, ooh, what a great networking opportunity, don't run for the board of directors. Do it because you care about the organization and what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Or because you don't like what we're doing and you think that you can make a difference. I mean, I don't care what reason it is, but, you know, if you're thinking about running for the board of directors, it's not a great career opportunity. Right, right. It, it, that's, that's- Pays nothing and takes your time. <laughs> but people have to do it, right? If you want the organization yes, to survive. people have to do it, exactly. Right. But people have mm-hmm. to do it, and, you know, if you prefer, if you if you appreciate the organization, you would prefer that the people who do it be people who care about the organization, and you care, then step up and take your chance, take your turn when it comes. That's sort of how right. I see it. You know, I feel like everyone who cares about the organization and who has a reasonably analytical approach to things um, should, if they have a chance, you know, take the chance to serve in whatever right. way will fit your schedule and how you do it. Right. And, if you don't and care, I think care you about also have to, have, have to be a seasoned enough writer and have had achieved a certain level of success to be able to really contribute. You know what I mean? For just because you're a lawyer or you're analytical, but you haven't done the writing side either, you're not necessarily a good fit. So, if uh, so, obviously, you, well, there you, know, are, you have um, reached that level. Yeah, it's it's sort of written into the bylaws that you know. I think you have to have published two books to be on the board of directors, um, and I think five to be the president of the organization. There are some national board positions that do not require publication. And specifically the pro mentor who, you know, 
obviously has to be a pro member, which means I can't have published a book as RWE defines publishing at present. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's a, you know, it's for the most part, I think it on the national level, the positions tend to skew towards people with publication experience. Right. Right, and that and that makes sense. That makes sense. Now, Courtney, you've also done. Um, you also have a very active blogging life, and that's something that a lot of authors. I mean, for a while, I tried to do a blog, and it's it's a, again, it's very time consuming, and writing blogs takes away from your writing, um, your writing books, and you also have to come up with very timely topics, but. I've followed your blog, and that's actually why I invited you to be on the show. Um, I followed you on Twitter. You seem to be very active, and, and I was very impressed by the way you you take very strong positions, um, and you're not you're not um, you're not afraid to engage. Like for example, I think you engaged in um, some controversy not controversy, but some back and forth with uh, Joe Conrath, who is also an active self publisher. Um, maybe you could talk about you know why. Because often I think a lot of times writers are almost afraid to take a strong stand. They don't want to alienate anyone, right? You don't want to alienate any potential reader. But you have not – that doesn't seem to be your approach. And maybe you could talk about why why you are, are willing to take strong positions on your blog because and Because I can't keep my mouth shut. It's because I can't keep my mouth shut. Honestly, like I have – several flaws. One of them is that I have a bad case of someone is wrong on the internet-itis. Um, like, when someone's wrong on the internet, I have a hard time being quiet about it, and uh, especially if it's something that falls within my area of ex- expertise, then I get really frustrated about it, and then you know, it, it can push me over the edge. Um, this is not, like, really a strategy. Right? Honestly, if I could turn it off, I would be so much more productive. But I mean, productive in like writing actual books instead of blog posts and arguing with people on Twitter, right? Don't do this. Don't be me, right? Like, it's not about it's not about engaging readers or whatever. It's just it's just you know, like this is this is just the way I am. Sometimes I think something, and then it annoys me. If it annoys me too much, then I just say it, right? Mm-hmm. So there you are. Like there's no there's no like real strategy behind this. There's no like me weighing pros and cons. It's just like, you know, somebody says something and it annoys me so badly for being wrong that I just can't keep my mouth shut anymore. <laughs> and is that what happened with Joe Conrad? And the reason why I'm ringing it up is because I had read his post. He, you know, he's he's written some books or he has a co-writer that he's he's gotten into romance, but he's primarily a mystery writer. And you know, I read his promo, and I kind of thought, you know, well, a little bit of puffery. You know, he was saying I was the best, or this is the first time anyone's written this type of romance book. And he just got skewered by you and by lots of other romance novelists um, on that. And it, it, I just thought it was interesting, and I was following it, and I thought it was interesting because, A, like I, it didn't even occur to me to be insulted by what he said because I just, you know, discounted a lot of what he said. I was like, well, it's his you know, he's trying to promote and it's a bit of puffery. But a lot of people got very heated about it, including you. And so um, is, was that just an example of somebody who said something that just pissed you off and you just wanted to prove that he was wrong? You know, so I just want to point out, this started because of like two things that I, like I had two tweets on Twitter where I just basically rolled my eyes 
um, at the thing that he said. And it wasn't really anything more than eye rolling. And the only reason I got into it with him is because he then went and engaged me and tried to claim that what he said was reasonable and correct. And it wasn't. It was stupid and eye rolling. You know, and it's fine. Mm-hmm. He can be stupid and eye rolling. He does it all the time. It's his shtick, right? But, mm-hmm. like, don't pretend you're not being eye rolling when you are. So, you know, like, it would not have been anything at all if he hadn't actually gone and then, you know, yelled at me on Twitter about being wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, he he got a little, he got very personal as well. So, um, but, you know, like, I admire that you're willing to do that, you know what I mean, and to you know, to take a stand because a lot of people don't, you know, and, and again, n- not because they don't care, but people are sometimes afraid, right? Oh, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to turn anyone off. But sometimes when you're so, you won't take any kind of position, you're kind of bland. So at least people know where you stand, Courtney, <laughs> which is, I think, a good thing. Yes, so they do. I wasn't know. criticizing uh, you I also all. Have I, to I say, actually thought it was very cool. You know, I don't know. Like, I think the things that I do tend to take a stand on, I'm aware that I'm going to turn some people off, but I don't think that they would like my books anyway, right? Like, I think somebody who... I just think that somebody who really is going to be pissed off that I say that a man did not invent erotica, right? Or write a groundbreaking erotic romance. I think that the people who are going to get pissed off about that invariably are not going to like my books, which tend to be very feminist and very female heavy and very aware of the erasure of female contributions that happen in this world in a variety of different ways. So, you know, I think it may be in a sense, not so much turning people off as helping people self-select, right? You know, it's, it's pretty simple. Mm -hmm. And I I also admire um, some of the analysis that you've done in your blogs about the recent Alora's caves and, um, and, the the lawsuit there against um, a blogger, which I I think a lot of people in the romance industry were very upset about, and I think you, it's the hashtag not chilled or unchilled. It's now not that chilled. is something, yeah, not chilled. Sorry, not chilled, and that's something that you know you're you're not. You said you don't really have a horse in the race in some sense. You're not an Alora's Cave author, but um, again, it's something that you're taking time out of your day to follow and to and to promote. And so I, I thought that was very cool as well. Um, maybe you could talk about why you decided to do that, and it, maybe it was just because you saw an injustice and you wanted to, you know, raise awareness about it. No, no, it's because Jade Black said something on the Internet and it was wrong. She made a comment about um, the standards for determining what was free speech and her her statement was wrong, um, didn't seem to be aware of the New York Times versus Sullivan standard, which says that if you have a limited purpose public figure, then, you know, you have to find actual malice, which in the legal sense doesn't mean, you know, you are malicious, but means that you knowingly or at least recklessly stated something that was untrue and you should have known that it was true, um, and I think it's fairly obvious to anyone who understands New York Times versus Sullivan that what Jane said she believes to be true because people had told her it was true. And Jade Black has posted that people lied to Jane, right? Under her own theory, if she actually freaking understood the law, she would understand she doesn't have a case. And I feel like she said something that was wrong. 
about the law on the Internet, and naturally that pissed me off. And she did it in a situation when she's going to cost Jane, um, who is the blogger in question, tens of thousands of dollars, if not more, in attorney fees. And Mm -hmm. I think that's deeply irresponsible, and it does piss me off. So someone was wrong on the Internet about something that I consider in my general area of expertise and about something that I care about, um, which is both romance and free speech. Um, And that's sort of a perfect storm to sort of piss me off long enough to start this whole thing rolling downhill. Mm -hmm. Well, like I said, I, I, you know, I've, I've enjoyed reading your blogs. Um, I, I, I agree. You know, people who are, out there blogging. I mean, you don't expect to get <laughs> sued over something like this. I can't imagine that Jane expected that to happen. And so, you know, I, I, I really hope that everything turns out, you know, in Jane's favor. But um, like I said, I think especially giving a lot of people who are following this are not necessarily lawyers, so you're, you've given kind of very user-friendly explanations of what's happening. So I've certainly enjoyed that as well. Um, Courtney, maybe we could talk about what – what books you have coming up, um, and uh, what you're working on right now. Um, Well, my next book is the book I'm working on right now. It's called Once Upon a Marquess. It's a historical romance. Um, It is – I don't want to say too much about it because I am still in that stage where I feel like there are a lot of details that can change about it. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to – say that it is about a woman whose family was ruined earlier in life who has taken charge of her life and the last thing she needs is um, the man from her old life showing up and reminding her of everything that she's lost um, including him so let's stop right there I don't want to say anything more I'm terrible at describing my own books (laughs) Um, well, sometimes if it's not fully baked, yeah, you don't want to do. You don't want to say too much. Um, I know that you said you've written in series. Um, how many different series do you have at this point? Depending on how you count, five. I have three completed ones, mm-hmm. and then I have my historical series which I'm kicking off with Once Upon a Marquess that I'm working on right now. And I have my contemporary series, which I just kicked off with Trade Me um, in January. Okay. Well, great. Well, it sounds like um, you've been busy at work. Maybe you could tell people where they can find you online. Um, I am on Twitter at Courtney Milan, no spaces or underscores. I am on Facebook at facebook.com slash Courtney Milan author. Again, no spaces or underscores. Or you can visit my website at www.courtneymilan.com. Okay, well, great. Well, Courtney, thank you so much for joining. Um, I've really enjoyed talking about um, your writing journey and and some of uh, the work that you've been doing. So, again, thank you so much. And um, I don't know if you're going – well, I assume that you're going to the the, – the conference here in New York in July. So yes, I'm, I'm still on the fence as to whether I'm going to go. I really should go because it's right in my backyard, but it's just a matter of getting the time off from work. But um, if I go, I hopefully um, I will see you there because I, I believe that you are going to be presenting a workshop. Is that correct? 
I am. I'm going to actually be presenting two of them. Oh, two of them. Maybe you could talk about what those are. Uh, I am presenting a workshop on metadata, uh, which is sort of uh, data about data. Um, And it is something that people think sounds really scary and isn't. And so I'm going to be demystifying it and explaining what it is and how how to take best advantage of it. Uh, That's number one. And Mm -hmm. number two, I am going to be on a panel called Writing Through Depression with a handful of other writers, including um, Zoe Archer, Carrie Lofty, uh, Carly Phillips, and um, one other person, Lorelai Brown. Um, And we're going to be talking about uh, how we individually deal with um, mental health issues as writers. Uh, and that's going to be in New York at RWA. And just this is my RWA board member hat going on briefly. If you're thinking of going and, you're, and you have not yet registered, you should do that because registration is almost certainly going to fill up in the next handful of weeks. We have had more people register for this conference faster than we've had for any other conference by a substantial margin. Yeah, no, so, I know I've been seeing that, so I really have to make a decision very soon. Yeah, but, um, it's one of those, yeah, you got to pull the trigger on it pretty soon or the decision's out of your hands. I know, so. I know. But, and, and even, I think, in the, the first week, the host, the host hotel fills up, so I don't know if they're in overflow, yeah. but it really has been a tremendous response, more so than the last um, the last one in New York, because I did attend that, and I think I did that very last minute, so, yeah. Well, that's a great thing, though, that lots of people are interested in going, and it means that the the organization is vibrant and, and, you know, people are willing to put their time and money into it. So, like I said, I, I, it's there, and I love the workshops. I went, like I said, I went to the one, I guess it was four years ago when it was in New York, and I just went from workshop to workshop, and it was just amazing. It really was. It was really great. And um, I think whether you're a, a new writer or a more seasoned writer, you can always find something. Um, that's helpful there. So anyway, well, that sounds great, Courtney. Um, well, maybe hopefully I'll see you at your um, at your workshops if I can get in. And um, I really do appreciate you taking the time to speak with me this evening. So thanks again. Well, thank- I really do. Thank you so much for having and- me. Yes, yes. Um, and um, again, just wanted to remind people about my um, free promotional books that are available right now. The, um, the Devlin Witch, book one of the Devlin Legacy series, is free, and that is available on Kindle and Nook and Kobo and Apple and all over the place. So please check that out. And also Cold Spring is available in ebook, free, until April 1st. And also the audiobook has just been released, narrated by Jerry Manthe. And that's, again, please check that out. And all of the excerpts and covers of my books are available on my website, BernadetteWalsh.com. So thanks again. This is Bernadette Walsh of Nice Girls Reading Naughty Books, and I will see you next time. Bye-bye.